Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com well, it's just tell the game warden stories. Uh, you know, sitting around a camp and stuff when I when I was either hunting or visiting or something, they always wanted to hear the warden's stories. Yeah. And, you know, there was no one telling those when I started podcasting. And when I retired, boy, you go from, you know, doing 90 miles an hour and then you're almost at a stop. And for the first three weeks, it feels like a vacation. And then you figure out, what am I going to do the rest of my life? And... Uh, <laughs> You always say, you do what you love and you never work a day in your life. Well, I love being a game warden. And I'm like, how can I kind of continue that? How can I extend my game warden career, so to speak? And I, I, I was listening to Steve Ranella and I was like, and it was the first time I heard of a podcast before. <laughs> it was at a hunter education banquet that I was part of just before I retired. And I was like, huh, that's pretty interesting. I'm like, why don't I tell game warden stories or have the game wardens tell their stories? Hey, this is Wayne Saunders from the Warden's Watch podcast, and this is the Tom Rowland podcast. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. 
What's going on, everybody? We got an awesome podcast for you today. One of my favorite new podcasts that I've found lately is called Warden's Watch. Wayne Saunders is a retired game warden, and he has an awesome podcast. He does it. It's really, really a well-produced podcast and goes over all these different stories of his career and invites guests on where they're talking about other careers of game wardens. And just it's just an interesting, interesting podcast, kind of you know, mystery, kind of conservation, kind of, I don't know, kind of cool. I like it. And uh, I've, I've been listening to it a lot. So today's a day that we're going to get together for the first time. I've never met Wayne, but uh, certainly feel like I know him from his podcast. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this show with former game warden, retired game warden, Wayne Saunders from Warden's Watch. Wayne, what's up? How are you? I'm doing well, and you, Tom? Man, great! Thanks for doing this. I'm I'm excited to talk to you. I've uh, I've been listening to your show, and I've I've learned a ton already. So I'm I'm excited to talk to you. Um, where are you right now? I'm in northern New Hampshire. I live right on the edge of the White Mountains. Okay, and that's where you made your career. Pretty much, yes. But I started off, I, I bounced around the country as a national park ranger, U.S. Fish and Wildlife officer. So I did some time. Virginia, Maryland on the seacoast there, out in Washington State and Oregon uh, in Washington, as well as uh, Lake Superior. I did a stint up there on the Apostle Islands National Lakeshore and West Virginia, where I was a whitewater ranger in New River Gorge, so in the Gauley River. Really? So before I took this job, I, I did a lot of different places and had a lot of different experiences and enjoyed the country as a young man. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because in listening to your show, it's very well done, by the way. Your your, your audio quality is outstanding, and the the stories are really good. Your guests are are great. Um, but the the concept of your show, well, why don't you tell me what the concept of of Warden's Watch is? Well, it's just tell the game warden stories. Uh, you know, sitting around a camp and stuff when I when I was either hunting or visiting or something, they always wanted to hear the warden's stories. Yeah. And, you know, there was no one telling those when I started podcasting. And when I retired, boy, you go from, you know, doing 90 miles an hour and then you're almost at a stop. And for the first three weeks, it feels like a vacation. And then you figure out, what am I going to do the rest of my life? And <laughs> you always say, you do what you love and you never work a day in your life. Well, I love being a game warden. And I'm like, how can I kind of continue that? How can I extend my game warden career, so to speak. And I, I, I was listening to Steve Ranella and I was like, and it was the first time I heard of a podcast before <laughs> it was at a hunter education banquet that I was part of just before I retired. And I was like, huh, that's pretty interesting. I'm like, why don't I tell game warden stories or have the game wardens tell their stories and being part of Northwoods law that of uh, hitch animal planet show, uh, there's the the millions of people that watch that. I'm like, let's do the backstage. Let's do a lot of the stories. Cause a lot of the guys get upset because the way it's portrayed sometimes, I mean, search and rescues that go on four days will take 10 minutes on the show. Right. And, <laughs> and it's a shocker yeah. for us. We're, we're like, that looked like it just, it was easy. And it wasn't easy. We worked our butts off doing that. And I want to tell those stories. I want the people out there to know the nooks and the crannies, the backstage, the the trauma, the the people, the the effects on families, uh, as well as the success stories uh, about the resource, the people, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to tell those stories and it's also great to share it with the public. So a, they know when they buy a hunting license or a fishing license, what it goes to and what we're doing, we're not just driving around drinking coffee, uh, all the things that we do behind the scenes because warden's watch, I, I picked that name and I kind of stole the name. I hate to say it. Uh, we, we do a little, uh, <laughs> thing for our state magazine and the game wardens write their little stories. It's called warden's watch. So I did a little digging and I asked the Colonel, Hey, do you care if I grab that name? I said, it's not, it, it's not listed anywhere. So I created an LLC under it and, and I kind of share it now, but I think warden's watch has become more popular as a podcast than it has a writing. So hopefully I, I lend a little to that, but uh, yeah. So, and we watch all the time, Tom, uh, you know, I always hear, oh, I've never been checked by a game warden. Uh-huh. You might not ever be checked by a game warden, but I bet you've been watched by a game warden. If you've spent any time fishing, any time in the woods, any time in the outdoors, uh, game wardens, that's what we do. Uh, my Sergeant Mike Moody, when he retired, the only thing he wanted was his binoculars and his look, binoculars looked like they'd been through world war two. And I said, Mike, why do you want your binoculars? Don't you want your handgun or something? And he's like, you know how much I've seen through these binoculars, you know, the stories, the cases, you know, how much these binoculars have seen and I have seen through them. He goes that those mean more to me than anything else in this cruiser. Wow. And I was like, he's so right. He's so right. Because those things are always glued to our eyes. They're always on the dash of our pickup. They're always in the, on the center console. We look through binoculars probably for half of our career watching people. So Warden's Watch just, you know, came into being. And then I, I always in, involve wardens. So my logo is a game warden with binoculars looking over a mountain scene that an artist actually that dates uh, one of the game wardens did for us. So I always try to incorporate those types of things. If there's a resource out there and it's game warden attached, I try to try to grab it and go with it or wildlife attached uh, because uh, if you can't tell, I got a lot of passion. And yeah, I love to do what I do. <laughs> yeah, well, I love what I it, do now. It, it comes through in the in the in the podcast for sure. And well, I, I don't know. I've been around game wardens all my life. You know, I mean, my my dad mm-hmm. taught me how to hunt and fish when I was, you know, I mean, he was probably taking me before I could walk. And and you know, you 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 kind of have this this image of a of what a game warden does even as someone that's been around game wardens a lot and been checked by plenty of game wardens and fishing game in Florida and I I'm not sure where you would extend is a game warden fishing game is it a federal game officer is it a state fet you know who is a game warden it, to me it's anybody that's checking my fishing license or my hunting license but I don't I'd be interested to hear what your kind of definition where that definition you know, you know, as you, as you move into different jurisdictions and state and federal and uh, is everybody a game warden that, that is a conservation officer or what's your definition of a game warden? It's really funny. You should ask that question. Pennsylvania <laughs> just rebranded themselves as game wardens and they actually did some science behind this. They did inquiries of people from young people to old people and asked about being a conservation officer, environmental police, or a game warden, and what they associated with and and the description thereof. And overwhelmingly, people associated the Fish and Game Officers of the Fish and Game Commission there, the Pennsylvania Fish and Game Commission, and I should say Fish and Game, it's actually the the Wildlife Commission or the Game Commission, Games Commission. So 
they associated with game wardens. So that's how they rebranded themselves by doing a little research. And I think across the nation, you will find that whether you're called the conservation officer, environmental police officer, or a game warden, we all associate with the word game warden, probably because it comes from our roots. It's the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, main, the main game warden service. I just love that they're titled that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very, they're, they're separate from their wildlife division. It's the main game warden service. I, I just love that, that they took that Pennsylvanians now game wardens and across the nation, there's, there's quite a few labels as game wardens. There's, there's conservation agents out there. There's conservation officers. There is environmental police. They wanted that police tied into them, uh, but they still re- renouncing. They like the word game warden. Yeah. And I think it goes over to the feds. I think it goes over to our refuge officers, our, our federal agents, our federal uniform guys. Uh, you know, the park rangers, uh, park rangers near and dear to my heart because I was one as a seasonal park ranger. Oh, yeah. Around the country. What, what yeah. uh, park did you work in? <laughs> I worked in a bunch. New River Gorge. Oh, yeah. Uh, Asheville Island, already. National Seashore. Yep. So, um, and then uh, Apostle Islands National Lakeshore. So park rangers, I was a seasonal law enforcement officer, and that's near and dear to my heart. And I would consider them game wardens. I checked licenses as a park ranger. Mm-hmm. I did search and rescue as a park ranger. They're just very specific to the most beautiful places in our country. Right. And what an opportunity to, to work in those places. Uh, outstanding. You know, some of the areas I dealt with a ton of people, Assateague Island, National Seashore. I was on the Virginia side, gorgeous beaches, tons and tons of people. But it was it was awesome to work with people. Apostle Islands, National Lakeshore. I was out on an island for 10 days in a row with four days off. My patrol vessel was a boat, 25 foot whaler. We had Loran back then. <laughs> so, and I had some of the, I mean, you've probably been in some gnarly seas, but I'll tell you Lake Superior, I was in seas that I couldn't see I over can. the swells and down the swells. And I was so scared one day I was picking up biologists on the lee side of the Island that had six foot rollers. And I wanted to pick them up cause I didn't want to go back along. Right. <laughs> so. I can imagine, you know, I don't have any experience on the great lakes really. Um, but I follow this one guy and he's called the, the Tongan ice beard. And this guy goes surfing in the Great Lakes in the wintertime. And he has this really long hair and this really long beard. And he puts this wetsuit on. And all of the hair that comes out of his wetsuit and his long beard turns into this giant icicle. And I always kind of repost his photos when it gets really cold in Florida. <laughs> I'm like, this is what it feels like in Florida. And it always gets a ton of, of, of you know engagement. But that guy posts also videos of how rough it gets there and this and the swell and the surf that comes in. I mean, he's actually surfing up there. And I didn't I didn't have I mean, you know, any large lake can turn pretty rough pretty quickly. Uh certainly out west I've experienced that with with Yellowstone Lake and and uh the Henry's Lake. Um all of a sudden it's it's fine. And then you know, the front comes through, the wind picks up and it gets really bad there. But those Great Lakes, I know that that they get that serious. I mean, that's like an ocean. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was probably the, the gnarliest I've ever been in is on Lake Superior. Um, yeah, <laughs> we had sailboats that were tipped over in those storms, uh, you know, with the Coast Guard. We went out and assisted with the Coast Guard and having the smaller vessel 
we usually picked them up off these vessels that were sinking and uh, <laughs> brought them to the Coast Guard after because we had a 25 foot whaler compared to their their little cutter out there, which, you know, was like 44 feet. So yeah. it was a, it was a little different. So we could maneuver in. So we got to work really good with the Coast Guard. That was a lot of fun. But again, operating some really gnarly weather. And I remember my, my boat, it would stall on me sometimes. And I brought it into the mechanics. They were like, we can't make this stall, Wayne. I jumped on the boat. I made it stall like the first time. And they're like, it's got to be you. <laughs> <laughs> so they tried it a few more times. They could make. I jump on the boat and I would snap it into neutral and it, it would stall. And they were like, oh my goodness. So they had to tear that boat apart. But stalling in a search and rescue when with those swells and it started right up, thank God. But uh, that's that's a pucker factor. Yeah, you know, you're for coming sure. in a boat on the swells to pick up people and it stalls on you. Yeah, that's just not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine that's that's uh that's a dangerous situation because you know you, that you'll get swamped if you if you just sit there. Mm -hmm. If you've got you know momentum, you can you can navigate those those big waves. But man, that's not a good thing when you lose power. Um, so. Let's let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, when I when I listened to your podcast, some of the things that I learned were that it was interesting. Like when I say that I've been around game wardens all my life, I have an I have an opinion of what a game warden does, and it's kind of like what you were telling me in the beginning: looking through binoculars, checking fishing license, making sure nobody's doing anything illegal. But then when you're when you're talking about some of these big cases and having people on talking about these these cases really there's a lot more to being a game warden and certainly at the federal level. Um, but it, it's really interesting on some of the stories, like these poaching rings that, that start off as like the one that I listened to, it started off as a, as a pig hunt and then it turned into um, a bear hunt right on the edge of, of Yosemite national park. And then this, these guys go undercover and they they continue to to build a larger and larger and larger investigation all based around um kind of poaching and illegal activity but it also goes into like felons that that are in possession of firearms and and lots and lots of other things and i guess like that i don't say, i wouldn't say that it took me by surprise because i do know that a that a federal game warden has more authority than a lot of police officers. And maybe you could go into that because I think that's real interesting about the, the authority level that a game warden has. And I don't know if everybody realizes that, like where, where that authority lies. Right. And it's, it's different with every state, but most of us across the country are sworn as federal officers through U.S. Fish and Wildlife, uh, Wildlife and NOAA. Which is a, a and big deal Noah. Our, yes, I so, didn't realize that. How yeah, does Noah play? We have play a three mile this? limit. Okay, we have a three mile limit. So uh, the feds don't have a lot of uniforms to enforce their regulations. So they have a few uniforms, and you probably have a whole lot more in Florida compared to the East Coast because I think we have maybe one uniform that shares Maine. Uh, New Hampshire and Massachusetts for the feds. So just, and so we do JEA, Joint Enforcement. Uh, what's the A? Joint Enforcement Agencies, Joint Enforcement. So it's a joint enforcement thing. So we get a grant through the federal government through NOAA to enforce federal regulations okay. beyond the three mile limit. 
So, which, which is good because it gives us a extends our authority out there under federal regulations. Also, the feds can direct us to do certain things that they want us to do. So some some years, and, and it's funny that some years they, they actually focus on lobsters, which usually is a state thing, but they have federal licensing, licensing for lobsters beyond the three-mile limit. And then striped bass, of course, uh, mm-hmm. coming up the East Coast, they're beyond the three-mile limit. There's trawlers out there. You can't fish behind the trawlers, digging up everything, and that's where the big fish are. And, and there's a lot of little requirements like that. So, yeah, we have contracts with them, and they can direct us on how – to do that and what they want us to enforce, whether it's net limits or, uh, you know, the whale uh, things on the lobster traps. Now the breakaways of the whales get caught in our, our lobster. Uh, say it's, it's a, you know, the lobster traps is usually 10 in a trawl and they usually get, if they get hung up on the, the trawl itself, they, they pull have the, the whale releases. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you have the similar stuff in Florida, but that's all fed regulated. So we have to check and make sure all these things are done. So, and it depends what they want, what year they want. So things always change up and we always try to deliver what we want, what they want us to do. So, and on the federal, on the U S fish and wildlife, if you think about it, ducks and geese are migratory birds. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of those rules and regulations are federal. The states adopt them uh, as state rules, which give state, you know, give you state authority to do it. But on occasion, uh, in where I live, we actually have a, a, an area called the Connecticut River area that is the flyway for the Connecticut River that goes into Vermont. So I could actually go into Vermont and enforce the federal regulations hmm. over there and vice versa. Vermont could come over here. Do we a lot? We work together a lot. So we don't have those issues, uh, but we do have those extended jurisdictions. Hmm. So and it yeah. seems to work well. Yeah, interesting. It certainly works well when you have a limited I mean, I don't know how many game wardens are there or, I mean, when we, again, we go back to the, the label of a game warden and a, you know, fish and wildlife and all these other things. I mean, would you say it's thousands across the country? The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, Almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Yes, definitely. Definitely thousands. Yeah, but Um, still, that's a huge job for thousands of people to do. Like, it seems like there would be a lot more, a lot more. And I think in the past, maybe it seems like I saw more, you know, I don't know if, I don't know where we stand now, if there are more now than there were a a while ago, but it just does seem like a really big job. So it, it does uh, make sense that each individual officer would have like some pretty serious authority. If they're, if you only have a few, then that seems, that seems to make sense, but you are dealing with all kinds of different things. Like, I mean, even like, drugs and drug cartels and all this stuff that you talk about on your podcast. And I'm like wanting to dig into these other ones. I didn't have time to get to all of them, but I mean, like you might have a poaching ring that, that the guy is growing weed on his, on his property that belongs to a cartel. Now all of a sudden, wow, that's like, now we're not talking about a couple of fish over the limit. Like this is like serious serious stuff and it's really interesting the stories that you go into on your podcast i I like it a lot it's cool um 
What's your, what, what would be like, how does somebody get into being a game warden? Like, is, if, as I'm sure that this is kind of a, an interesting thing for, for you guys right now is like, what does the future hold and where do you get your future, um, your future staff, your future game wardens? Like where, where do, how does a young person decide that that's a path that they want to take? Or maybe how did you do it? Well, I started off very young as a lot of game wardens do, but others come into it. And I wouldn't even say late in life, but, uh, you know, John Norris, my partner, he came in, you know, didn't realize what a game warden was until he was in college and got introduced uh, by being out in the backcountry and seeing one. And he was like, there, that's what I want to do. Yeah. You know, dropped everything from being an engineer and jumped into being a game warden. Uh, myself, six years old, I had this uh, meeting in the woods, so to speak. Me and my dad were grouse hunting and my we had just flushed a grouse. And my dad was kind of stalking it and I was standing back and just heard some slight movement. I looked behind me and here's a guy in a cowboy hat, you know, sitting, you know, <laughs> watching us. And, uh, and he just kind of motions to be quiet and I'm quiet. And, you know, my dad, the bird doesn't, he doesn't flush the bird again. So he comes back to get me with my unloaded BB gun, uh, because I was learning gun handling at that time as a six-year-old. So he, all I had was a BB gun and it was unloaded at that. So, but I still, it was, it was great to start somebody off at that age gun handling and the game warden checked us and we were in the middle of the woods and we had walked from our house. So how we had that encounter is just, uh, it's so strange to me, whether it was a godsend. And I, I knew the game warden, he's since retired that checked us in the woods. He doesn't remember the meeting, but a six-year-old certainly had an impression uh, about that day. And as he's leaving, I asked my dad, Hey dad, who's the cowboy in the woods? And he's like, that's the game warden. He, he enforces all the rules and regulations, you know, protects the wildlife. And I said, geez, I think I want to be a cowboy in the woods. So that from six years old, I, I started at 15. I was riding with my local game warden, Sergeant Bryant, who ended up being Lieutenant Bryant. And I was doing ride-alongs. So I would do a, a lot of ride-alongs. I was kind of like a sidekick and worked with him <laughs> a lot through my high school years. And then when it was time for college, he brought a guy that they just had hired who retired, Lieutenant Bogardis, Todd Bogardis, in as a fresh recruit, graduated from the State University of New York at Cobalt School, and said, hey, Wayne, this sounds like a really good school. Why don't you talk to Todd? So I talked to Todd and he sold me on the school. That's where I went to college. And that's how I began, began my, my career. But back then, you know, 30 years ago, it was tough being a game war to get it, that job. There was very few jobs and a lot of people wanted them. So that's why I went to the National Park Service. I gained experience by going to all these different places. And I kept putting it on my resume. You know, when I went to Lake Superior, boat operation, huge. Uh, I got my dive certification when I was in college. I went down to your neck of the woods. I dove in the panhandle. I dove in the keys. I, I did, you know, I, I was all the way up to YMCA silver, uh, almost, almost a master diver just below there. But I put a lot of effort into diving because we have a state dive team in New Hampshire. So I knew that was it. So I took my EMT when I was in New York, I was, I was doing my EMT. So I got my EMT certification and everywhere I went, I picked up skills, whether it was the Astigue Island National Seashore, whether it was people skills, dealing with huge crowds, DWIs. I went out West. I became a duck cop out there on the Columbia river in Washington and Oregon. Again, skill sets of, you know, building those skill sets. So towards the end, I was in the final wraps for, uh, Virginia, 
Maine and New Hampshire. New Hampshire called me first and I grabbed the job and called Maine and Virginia and said, thanks. I appreciate it, but I got a job here in New Hampshire. So yeah. yeah. So it's uh, and nowadays I would say the same thing. The biggest thing is to keep your nose clean. That's, you know, we still have requirements. You're going to go on a polygraph if you're in New Hampshire. I'm not sure. Most states require some sort of background and a lot of them require polygraphs. And I think it's really good because we get a high quality person in the end of it, Tom. Mm -hmm. We have vetted them so much that we have a tendency to keep them and they are good employees, generally speaking. I'd say 99% of them. So would they need to like, would there be a pathway to that? Like studying uh, like like biology in college or or what would you what would be the pathway kind of something like you did just continue to pick up these skills and continue to gain experience? Or is there, is there kind of a, a, a paved pathway, like a recommended pathway that, that people take? I'm sure there's lots of ways you can, you can. There is come. lots of ways uh, guys get out of the military because in New Hampshire, and it's very similar across the country, two year degree or two years of military, two years police experience, uh, gets you qualified. Uh, military guys come out, they, they can roll right in and they fit well because we're a mm -hmm. paramilitary type. Right. Uh, other people that want to follow this, there's colleges that have conservation law programs. There's also, you know, your criminal justice programs. And there's also your biology side. A lot of the people I worked with had biology degrees and then they, they, they picked up the law as they went along uh, and Great, gain those skill sets. So there are a lot of ways to get there. Is there a total right one that always guaranteed? I don't think so. Right. And I think the diversity of these people makes us stronger because my boss, former boss, was a biologist. Uh, you know, he had a degree in biology from the University of New Hampshire. Very highly intelligent guy. He's uh, doing foraging now. So he's picking mushrooms in the woods. That takes a pretty smart guy to do that, if you mm. ask me, or, or to trust the guy to eat the mushrooms, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the morel, I can identify the morel, and those are really good yeah. to eat. Um, but there are many others that, that are a little trickier, and, you know, you don't want to make that mistake, the wrong, right. eating the wrong one. But I right. guess, like, that's, uh, and so he's, it, that gentleman's retired? And just foraging yeah. in the woods? Yeah, White Mountain Forager. And, you know, he has chaga, he does chaga, he does morels. He's picking fiddleheads right now. He posted a picture the other day of five-gallon buckets full of fiddleheads. Wow. Uh, just Yeah, but the love of the woods that, that Doug has is, is amazing. And that was always shown through as a, as a supervisor. He was the guy that was always in the field. Uh, and as his sergeant, you know, I, I kind of did a lot of different things for him so he could be in the field. <laughs> Well, I would imagine that that's, that's one of the, that's one of the, the things that, you know, you, if, if you go into being a, a game warden because you love being outdoors and you happen to be really good at it, I would think that you would be recruited or, or uh, promoted and, and, and then put in a leadership position, which would maybe take you out of the field, which I would imagine would be very frustrating for some people and, and, and exactly what others wanted, but did you did you encounter that in your career like like where you, they want you like oh you need to be like here at this desk doing these things as opposed to being out there you know doing all the all the things that you wanted to be a game rewarding for I love that question because I kept being asked the colonel is a good friend of mine in New Hampshire uh Colonel Kevin Jordan we were patrol partners so he patrolled right beside me 
Uh, we did a lot of cases together. Uh, as a district lieutenant, you're kind of like a police chief in a town. Yeah. Uh, you have guys, about eight guys that work under you. You have a sergeant uh, and you're kind of your, your own king, so to speak, in your kingdom. Uh, you do, you still, you know, say if the colonel wants you there, you're there. But the colonel kept asking me to go to Concord and uh, and be, you know, come down and help him out. And I said, hey, colonel, what's going to happen the day you walk by my office and I'm not there? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, what are you going to say when I'm not sitting at my desk? He's going to, he's going to, well, well, where the heck are you? And I said, exactly. I said, Do when people walk by my office now, what do you think they say? And he's like, he started to laugh because no one really cares. <laughs> so I didn't want to lock myself into that. And as a, a Lieutenant supervisor, I, I get the best things. I got to go to the best cases the guys were doing. So that was probably my favorite job because if a guy had a case ongoing, I'd run up there and help him. So I'd be in the woods, I'd help him out. And guess what? I didn't get any of the paperwork. They had to do, they uh, were doing the warrants. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like the best of both worlds right there. <laughs> it was awesome, Tom. I mean, we made some, some awesome cases that I was right there for, but I didn't get any of the paperwork. And I, you know, I was making a lot of the decisions and the higher up stuff. So they needed me there or a sergeant, but I could go where the cases were. So I think I participated a lot more as a lieutenant than I did as, you know, a, a field officer. Cause sometimes you don't always get to go help. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. And the paperwork chews up a ton of time that you could be doing something else. I'm sure. Yes. And there was a lot of paperwork that went along with being a lieutenant that, you know, you had to do at certain times. Yeah. So because I mean, you're building, I, you're building a case against someone uh, or a bunch of individuals and that has to be perfectly executed. Otherwise it gets thrown out in court. Right. Absolutely. And we were writing search warrants in the middle of the night in the fire station, coordinating, getting border patrol to help us out, uh, to execute it. Because the one case I'm thinking of, we had two places that we, uh, we were there and I know a lot of people love stories and I love this story. Yeah, this I want to tell, I want you to tell a couple for sure. So we were going up to set up uh, on this. We had information about a, a poaching ring and it was snowing so bad, Tom, that I was thinking about calling it off and I didn't. So, cause I'm always big with when you have a plan, stick with it. And when something goes sideways, stick with the plan. So until it goes so sideways, you can't stick with the plan. So we rolled up and we put in our surveillance, we put our surveillance team out. So we had two game wardens right close to this guy's house. And we were just up, probably two camps up, parked there. And it snowed so hard, it covered all our tracks, which was awesome <laughs> as far as, you know, there, there couldn't be a, a perfect thing. So uh, while we're sitting there, me and the sergeant, we're, we're sitting in the cruiser as the backup team. And the other guys were in the snow. Uh, and they're, all their tracks are covered down, too, because it's, it's snowing in there. They're watching surveillance. They have uh, some guys drive into this guy's house, and they have deer in the back. And they're they're offloading them to the garage. Well, they want to hit them right there. Well, they're calling on their radios. Unfortunately, I, I don't know if it was the cold or what. Their radios, we never heard them. We had a mobile. We weren't that far. We were less than three quarters of a mile away from these guys. And we never heard their radios. They couldn't call us in to hit these guys because they would have come out of the woods and we would have hit them with a cruiser and we would have been right there. We would have had it. Um, so these guys drive away and we, we don't even know this is happening. They come up through the woods. They hike up to us and tell us this while the snow was so, so great. And it's fresh. We, we start tracking the tracks that where that those guys came from. 
So we track it to another camp that's probably three miles away. Just it's, it's so great. It goes from this house to that camp and it's, there's nothing else out there, Tom. It's, it's, it's the only track there. So we go to the fire department and we start writing search warrants, you know, based on what these guys saw and we write them for these two places. So we're, we're in the Northern part of our, our, our County and our state. And so we got back up from border patrol. Border patrol is always there to assist us, which is awesome. Uh, as well as the local chief, chief uh, came along too, which was an awesome asset. Uh, local chiefs are great assets. And uh, we, we hit both of these places simultaneously, and we were able to get the deer as well as a lot of other deer parts and get confessions and everything based on, you know, A, we froze our butts off, did some surveillance. It would have been so much easier to hit them right there, but the radio didn't work. So now we have to make uh, lemonade out of lemons. Right. And uh, could we have hit those, them that night and called exigent circumstances? We probably could have. But like you said, we want to make the case so tight that in, in the court, the judge doesn't have to make that decision. He makes that decision when he signs the warrant that we have enough probable cause to go in these places. Not that they had enough probable cause to go in those places after we kick down the doors and, and get our evidence. Because is it easily destroyed? Absolutely. But is it going to be in there in the morning? Probably. So just to make sure we always try to get the warrant no matter what, just so we take that loophole out. Because if I was a defense attorney, that's where I'd target the, the warrant. You know, you right. didn't have the circumstances. And then we have to argue. When the judge signs that warrant, he says that we have the probable cause to go in there. And that was that was just an awesome case of being at the right place at the right time. Uh, yeah, that was now, that was just a start. When I, when I hear these different stories, like on your podcast and the one that you just told, I mean, maybe I'm super naive and I just don't realize that this is probably going on all around me. And and certainly <laughs> we've seen we've seen stuff happen in the in the keys and there have been some 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 big things that that happened. But that makes a little bit more sense to me because there are certain fish that are 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 out of season or illegal to take at all and they still have, you know, a high food value and people want them and and you know, I, I could see why somebody, I mean, there's, there's money attached to it immediately. So with these deer poaching rings, like, like something like that. And there was one that I listened to on your podcast and, and they were talking about this guy had like 120 deer, um, that he had, that he had killed. Like, I, I just, where, what's the incentive? Like, are they, is, is it really worth the money? I mean, is there a is there a market for that? If if we went out and killed 120 deer, is there a market for that? Is it like what is what is going on there? Because I, I, I'm just, I guess I I just didn't realize that that people were selling deer parts like that and deer. I mean, are they selling the meat or what's what is going on in your experience? Right, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, we had this one in Ohio, the big case out there, uh, where the guy was making snack sticks. So he uh -huh. was selling them, he was bartering them. So he would process all these snack sticks. So, and people just love deer snack sticks. Um, I love deer snack sticks. I, I told sure. my son, if we got to go out in New York, would turn into snack sticks. He was all excited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that, that, that legal was one snack place. sticks. <laughs> exactly. Legal snack sticks. <laughs> that was one place where he was making a profit out of the deer. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of others. Deer, I don't think necessarily have a lot of profitability to them. 
Uh, I think it's more, a lot of these poachers, I think have mental issues. I think mm. it's a disease, to be honest with you, that they got to, they start killing and they just want to kill. They just want to kill. And, you know, one of the stories told, uh, you know, he justified it as he kept giving it away to people. He would make them pay the butchering charges so it didn't cost him too much. And, you know, and he gave it away, but he could go out and kill again. And he justified it in his mind because he was giving it away and, you know, I think a lot of it is justified in people's minds. And I always said, you know, we don't have the poachers that fill their freezers anymore because, you know, there's a roadkill list up where I am. And I was big on getting roadkills. And, you know, one of the younger officers said to me one time, well, I don't want to give him a roadkill because he's a poacher. And I said, no, give him a roadkill because he's a poacher because his freezer is full. Do you think he's going to try to fill it anymore? He can only fill it so right. much. Right. Instead of killing five deer this year, maybe he kills one because we gave him five road kills to fill it in. So uh, sometimes I wonder, you know, and it's so, that is a driving force with some of these guys is food and the guys that don't talk, uh, don't get caught. But those are the guys that are in it for food. They're not in it for bragging rights. Right. Remember the deer pools that we used to have? And there was a lot of poaching going on because of the money. And you said you said it too. You connect the money to the animal and we put a, a price on that animal that's been when it becomes poached right that's when it becomes you know trying to sneak it in well, well in these so days of, of like social media and 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 things like that i'm sure that social media is a tool that i know the florida fish and wildlife is is definitely using social media and seeing what people are posting and and especially when uh the goliath grouper regulation came out that you couldn't lift them out of the water anymore tarpon you couldn't lift those out of the water anymore and they were definitely searching social media for pictures like that. And, you know, at first contacting people and saying, Hey, look, I don't know if you know this, but that's illegal to do what you're doing. And, uh, then I, I haven't heard people getting, getting called like that anymore, but I'm sure that that is a way that, that, I mean, why wouldn't you use that? Like it's people are, are po posting these pictures of deer that are being, poached and you hear these stories now of of people that have had this certain deer on a trail camera on their own property for you know its entire life and they can you know they're identifying marks the way that the antlers grow i mean it is it's like a fingerprint you know and then all of a sudden they see that deer at a sports expo and they're like huh <laughs> you know yeah. like something's not right here because that that deer should never have left my land mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and then they can track it down like that. I mean, you use social media, right? Or wardens do. Absolutely. And if you listen to the podcast with Colonel Eddie Henderson from Georgia, he created a position to do just that. That's a full-time job in Georgia to surf social media to look for these things huh. and then hugely successful, right? You know, if, if the, so they're, they're making cases left and right. And that what that person does, and it's an analytical person it's not a game warden doing it but they feed the field force with this information mm -hmm. so they're always doing investigations based on what that facebook instagram uh tiktok uh, all of them now i mean think about uh, i think about just one person doing that and i'm like that, that that's that's a lot of work to do every day uh, go in and, and surf these social medias to look for violations. And then when you find a violation, get all the information you can and then feed it to your uniformed officer, your special investigator, depending on what it is. Like you said, you know, knock on the door and say, hey, I don't know if you know if this is illegal. You can't take carpet out of the water. 
Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Great, great outreach, great things. We're trying to stop that. That's good. Um, turtles, you know, if they're taking turtles and they get a whole bunch of turtles and they're selling turtles uh, for sale, um, then that's a whole different thing. If you have an investigator, you're going to feed it to that investigator. If your agency doesn't have an investigator, you're going to give it to the game warden. And you may do an undercover uh, a sting on that. We, we have in New Hampshire for turtles. Uh, hmm. People selling you know, turtles and, you know, we'll, we'll take some officers that maybe aren't so well known, which right now, well, I don't think we have any that are well known. So um. <laughs> what kind of turtles like box turtles or like pet turtles uh, or landing turtles? Um, yeah, the tree turtles, things that are native to New Hampshire that are protected. Are they so, eating them or uh, keeping them as pets or, or selling pets. them? Yeah, OK. Yeah, and that and that's right now. That's that's the hot thing around the country is turtles because we're taking all our turtles and shipping them across uh, Europe and Asia because isn't it the coolest thing to have a United States turtle when you're somewhere else? I mean, we don't mm. think of it as a big deal, but when you're in oh, in China, we or do in the Ukraine, Everglades. <laughs> we, we think it, it wasn't a big deal at one point and now it's a huge problem with the pythons and the the lizards and the monitor lizards and the crazy fish and everything that alligators everything that's down there especially the pythons though those things are uh, out of control in the everglades and that's all it takes is like you never know where you're shipping that turtle and it might be in the perfect habitat where it's gonna just explode and kill kill all the native i mean i, I don't know if a turtle's going to do that but a big snake does yes and yeah and that's exactly what did that there's the pet industry people wanted to have a big snake and when it got too big it off it went and uh multiplied and multiplied and now we have a problem yeah with no uh, so with no predators i mean it has no predators whatsoever and i don't know what keeps it in check in its own in its own native habitat but something does and nothing keeps it in check in the Everglades, even the ever, even the hunters. I've had two of those guys on the podcast and man, they are expert Python hunters and they're all licensed by the state and everything. And they, they go out and they get lots of them, but they're barely scratching the surface on, on, on the problem. I mean, they're, I don't, neither one of those guys felt like they were making a dent in the population. I mean, they felt like they were doing good work and getting as many as they possibly could. But when you look at the size of the Everglades and just how fast these things are reproducing and this perfect habitat that we provided for them with the great weather and this amazing giant area with tons of food. And I mean, it's just like, have at it. Man. Like that's, I don't know. It get, it got way out of control. Um, what do you think the, did you ever have a case that that took you like to the edge of of uh of being a game warden like started to incorporate lots of other things like maybe maybe a wildlife violation was the was the tip of the of the of the iceberg and then all of a sudden you 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 find out all this other stuff i mean i'm kind of i was looking through the 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 uh 
list of, of people that you had on your podcast. And I was kind of looking for one of those because I'm sure it happens. Like people that are doing wildlife violations are probably doing other kind of things too. And it might lead to all kinds of other things. But did you ever have a case like that in your career? You know, I've handed stuff off to the feds that I've found. Um, but just not that, that tip that exploded into other jurisdictions and rolling, you know, into a, an enormous case that I can recall right now. And I would have recalled by now, I think. What about, what um, about all the, all the times, uh, it was just a few years ago, I think, where you were hearing so much about the bear gallbladders and it was, it was extending up your way, but it's certainly happening in the, in the great smoky mountains national park. And, and people were, were, um, poaching the bears for their parts, like more, mostly for their gallbladders is what I was hearing. Is that, What's the status on that now? Is that kind of calmed down or is that still a big, big thing? It, it ebbs and ties as the demand comes. Um, you know, it's, it, it, you asked me that and I just, uh, I'm working on my, my, one of my podcasts coming up is Operation Cody uh, from Todd Vandevert, who was undercover warden out of Washington state. So I got his book right here, actually, because yeah. I've been working on it. Okay, so cool. um, this is an upcoming podcast where Todd, not only scrapes the top, but he makes huge inroads across this nation. Start being a Washington game warden. Uh, they, they set up a storefront uh, and an internet business uh, buying, buying animal parts, buying animals, legal ones, but it expanded into illegal ones like they thought it would. And they just got a lot of different things. So that's what I'm currently working on is uh, his podcast. It looks so it's like a, be a two grizzly podcast. bear on the, on the cover. Is it, it is a grizzly bear. And that man, he he got into just what you're talking about. He scratched the surface, but he also started down those roads that, man, there was some, um, you know, he got invited to a cockfight uh, out in Washington State. So um, didn't even know how uh, that was still going on, but it is still going on. As a Happens. matter of fact, when I mentioned that, that there was some outreach here in New Hampshire over cockfighting that, you know, they were doing warrants on. Um, not a, a wildlife warrant, but we were, you know, actually being consulted on some of this stuff uh, because of that, which was interesting. But that that led into uh, that organized crime. Really? Uh, Sturgeon with caviar. Uh, again, he scratches the surface of the Russian mob. Uh, <laughs> you know, Todd, and given, given more time, uh, who knows where it would have gone. That Their operation lasted a year, and the amount of stuff that he got was amazing amazing it'll blow your mind um just oh, it's blows my mind. is that book out right now yes it is operation cody best of the wild Tom vandervert so it is out he sent me one and um yes and we talk about operation cody in those uh podcasts and god's a very dynamic uh undercover agent and uh just the, the stuff that he did was just uh yeah scratching the service and i think if it would have similar stories some states don't have the resources uh, that Washington state had. Some, some have undercover units, some don't. Uh, New Hampshire, we can barely keep uniformed officers, so we don't have an undercover unit. Sometimes we'll use other states to help us out if we have something going on. Um, but it's just all about money and being able to, to do that type of thing and the size of your agency. Um, when you have 600 game wardens, it's easier to pull some for special operations teams like undercover, you know, or these met teams, the SOG teams um, that I'm seeing being developed nationwide. 
uh, I think we're expanding the, you know, the game warden and you probably heard it on my podcast. I call them the police in the woods. Mm. And when, when you step into the woods, a lot of my locals, Hey, did you call Wayne? Did you get some game wardens over here? Cause this suspects in the woods. And uh, we like to have game wardens here <laughs> when, yeah. the, when the guy runs in the woods. So it, it works out really, really good. And, but that's operation Cody and Todd, he, he talks about exactly what you're, you're talking about. And this, so many more cases like that stuff, Tom, that, that is around the country. And that's why I'm talking about it. That's why I'm interviewing these guys. You guys, like you, were, you know, like, wow, this is happening. This is happening probably around you. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that it is. I mean, and you're, you know, you're around, you know, you see people that whatever, they go over the limit. They're not practicing you know, maybe it's a catch and release area and you see them keep a fish and, and, or, or they're, they're not fishing, you know, they're spin fishing in a fly fishing area. I mean, real pretty minor things, right? Like it could be, it could be a mistake, it, but it's probably not like they're probably intentionally doing it or, or something over there. You know, the lobster thing in the, in the Florida Keys is, I don't know what it is about lobsters, but that little little creature creates more greed and and really some stupidity out of people than anything I've ever seen. You would think the thing was made out of gold. I mean, they you're you're supposed to get six per person, and people just can't stop. Like they they just want more. And um, there's a ton of violations, you know, on that. You have you have these different things, and it's kind of interesting to listen to your stories about it because you have these things where where you have inexperienced hunters or fishermen that finally get into this spot where they're they're catching them or they're you know they're killing them and maybe they have struggled to get near a deer and now here are six of them and it's like <laughs> you know, I've been doing this for six years and I haven't seen any, I'm going to take a shot at two of these right now, even though I know I'm not supposed to like, that is one thing. But then this other deal that, that you're talking about in some of your stories of these, these coordinated rings of, of people that are, that are doing whatever. And maybe that is, um, it, it usually comes back to the money like you're talking about, because maybe it's illegal guiding for, a trophy animal on the edge of a national park or in California for the mountain lions that you're not supposed to hunt at all, but there's tons of them. And so I guess people are being ju- are justified in, in their own minds of saying, well, there are tons of them and nobody's looking. And, but I mean, that's a, that's a whole other thing. Like you have these, you have lots of, of, of levels of a wildlife violation, I guess. And you see that tons with, with your entire career. And I'm sure that within a very short period of time, you could walk up to somebody and be like, this guy probably miscounted fishing was really good. And they just started bailing him in the boat and he probably got more than he wants more than he's supposed to, but he's over the limit and we we need to check him in. That's probably, I don't know how, how quickly can you discern a situation like that? Like, uh, a, an accidental over the limit and a, a, a coordinated kind of habitual offender. Very, very quickly. And, <laughs> and the more seasons you get, the more quicker, the quicker it is when you're watching people, is this guy catching these? And is he looking over his shoulder? Is he looking around? Right. Or is he just wailing away, throwing them in a bucket? 
not a care in the world, not worried that there's a boat over, you know, 50 feet from him or a hundred feet from him, whatever. He's, but if he's looking around, seeing who's watching, now he's slipping that short, you know, fish in somewhere and hiding it. Those now, now you have an intentional violation. You don't have the guy that didn't know. The guy that didn't know if you were watching him just catches it and throws it in the cooler where those other fish are legal or not. So when you open it up, there's legal fish and illegal fish. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of people they need an education. And, and you can just, you get a feeling of working with so many people, uh, the, the lying, the, you know, the, the fishing, throwing the fishing rod in the river uh, <laughs> after you walk, walk up and you say, can I check your license? And he throws the rod in the river. I'm like, why did you do that? Did you think I didn't see it? Do you think now that you don't have the evidence, that it's, you know, it's going to change it? I, <laughs> it's just the, the strangest things. But again, a guy that didn't want to cut caught, the guy that just, you know, shows you willingly. Yeah, my fish are right here. I've been doing really well. Hey, check these out. And, you know, among his legal fish or illegal fish, that's certainly, you know, hey, you can't do this. You know, does he get a warning? Does he get a ticket depending on the species and the sensitivity of it? Because uh, some of our, as you know, some of our fish, you know, they would write you a ticket regardless of your intent right. because they, there's only so many of them. I talked to a game warden in Scotland, one of the ones coming up, they have like 17 fish for a, one tributary that they're actually taking eggs out of and using the DNA to clone in a hatchery and put them back in this one stream. 17 fish tom 17 wow. Wow. <laughs> think about that i That's, mean my hat's off to them yeah. to clone those and they're being so specific because they don't want hatchery fish they want the same dna from these fish and they're growing them and as soon as they grow them they're putting them in they're putting eggs in there so they're doing a lot of work but think about that 17 fish and, and you come up on the guy that's just caught three of them oh. whether it's intentional or unintentional I think you got to write a ticket on that yeah. one. <laughs> I think that's just a place that I'm not going to go fishing. I'm just not going there. Like, <laughs> that, seems like, that seems like that's, that's just like, you're just looking for it, man. You're just looking to get in trouble. Yeah. Uh, that's in the nest, uh, you know, where uh, the, the Loch Ness monster is. So oh, that, really? This fisheries, this fisheries bailiff covers that. So that well, that's why there's only 17 left because the Loch Ness monster has <laughs> been eating every one of them. I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Loch Ness monster. You know, I I, I, do I, I don't know I don't know that much about it, but you see, you know, there's like little tiny pieces of video, and there's all these pictures, and I just remember as a kid just looking at that, being like, "Well, yeah, it's a monster." I mean, yeah, it's swimming right there. Like, I want to go there and check right. that thing out. I know if I pull up to that lake, I want to see the thing like immediately. That's I know right. I will. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, we're in a we're in a funny time right now because you know with COVID. Um, there's, there's been a real resurgence in hunting and fishing, uh, a, a real resurgence, which for that, I'm, I'm really happy and grateful. That has to be somewhat problematic for people in, of your profession, because you have a lot of people that are beginning anglers, beginning hunters, which is even more, uh, interesting, uh, because they have weapons. Um, how, what do you think, like, when you have a big resurgence like this, does does the fishing game um, or a game warden feel any responsibility towards education? Or are there any sort of education programs? Or is that, like, that's not my responsibility whatsoever. My responsibility is to 
is to um, make sure that the law is not being broken. Um, because you're going to have these people that just, they don't know. They don't know how serious wildlife violations are. They don't know that a game warden has more authority than the sheriff. They don't know that that, that doing something wrong, you could just impound their truck right there. Like this is serious stuff for, for beginners. And they think maybe the, 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 like, like I've heard before, Oh, it's not a, there's not a limit. It's just a suggestion. Well, it's <laughs> not a suggestion. It is definitely a limit. So what do you, what do you think the status of, of all of these new people going into the outdoors with hunt, with, with guns and fishing rods, how does that kind of have any effect on, on somebody that's a, that's a game warden? Is it, is it, is it an education process or is it, is it kind of like, no, nope, it's your responsibility to obey the law period. And that'll go by game warden to game warden. I will tell you because we all have different personalities and what one does another doesn't because we have a lot of leeway, a lot of gray area, but I will say the majority of the game wardens want to educate people. They want them to do it the right way. And the departments are reaching out, you know, the fish and game departments have teaching resources for these new people and they should be reaching out and learning about this. And, you know, Hunter education is the beginning of that as a game. I'm involved in that. I'm a Hunter education instructor as I'm a retired guy. I still engage that because I believe in passing that on to the future and trying to give that, you know, I take my son's friend out uh, hunting so, cause I want to pass that on. I want to teach him the, the right way to do. We shoot, I bring him shooting so we can pass that on and learn good hunting skills. And every hunter, every fisherman, I think is obligated to, for these new people. If you know somebody that's new that needs help, help them, give them, under, teach them. Cause that's how we're going to keep them engaged. Cause if they get a ticket for doing something that they didn't understand and didn't know, they're not going to participate anymore. They're going to throw their, you know, rods and reels back in, in the garbage and say, screw that because I don't want to get another ticket. Right. No, I think we have an obligation to teach these people as best we can um, within staying the rules. Does that mean warnings? That, that's up to the individual officer. Does that mean, Hey, this is what you should have done. Hey, this is how you read the book. You know, that's the biggest thing I used to, I do this all the time in hunter education classes and wherever I can, because it's the most important thing is to get that rule book and learn how to read it because it, it's tricky. It's tricky in every state. Go to Alaska. My God. I mean, I'm Morton and I, I you, you make, make sure you have the right booklet for the right area <laughs> to do the right fishing um, and make sure you're on the right body of water. Uh, and it, and it's, it's, it's really difficult. And that's some of the conversation going on among agencies nationwide is, is it too difficult? Are we making it too difficult? Can we simplify these for hunters and fishermen and still achieve our goals? And I think the answer is yes. I think, yes, let's make it simple. Um, the, the, the new, and I just learned about this, the new duck uh, thing. You can shoot three ducks of any species. Or you can get six ducks of what you normally should, you know, whether it's three mallards, this or that. There's several states trying that out because duck identification probably keeps people out of duck hunting mm. because you got to learn how they fly. You got to learn their coloration. You, you got to learn a lot. Duck hunters, boy, I could write a ticket on a duck hunter probably every time. <laughs> and it's just because there's a lot to know. So I'm like, that. I like that idea. I like that it takes all the pressure off that guy. To did three ducks. He doesn't get six ducks. He gets three, but you know what? I can shoot a hen. I could shoot three hens. 
Um, and I don't have to worry. I say that's a duck. I can shoot it. Uh, I get, you know, a wood, two wood ducks and I get one uh, hen mallard and I'm on my way home. Uh, I don't get my, you know, two male mallards, two drakes, a hen, uh, two woodies, um, and a, you know, a shoveler or something. Um, just throwing that in there. Uh, but, you know, so I don't get those six ducks, but I don't even have to worry about what they are. I think that's, that's a great way to look at it. And there's going to be a lot of states watching how that works out because I think it's going to introduce a whole lot more people into waterfowl hunting. And I think it's awesome. And I think we should start doing, looking at fishing, you know, not making the fish suffer, not making populations suffer, but looking at the general regulations and trying to simplify things so everybody can read them and understand them because as a game warden and as a retired game warden, it is funny. I'm going out to Colorado to do some elk hunting. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And I'm reading their book. I read that thing four times, cover to cover. Finally, I called my contact out there. I said, hey, where do I register an elk when I, after I shoot it? And he's like, yeah, you don't register an elk. I'm like, you don't register? Here's an East Coast guy that's never hunted out West, except for ducks when I was uh, working out there. I'm like, you don't register animals? Go, no, you just tag it. And you got to you know, show proof of sex. You don't register your animals? I, that's foreign to me. That's foreign to me because every place I've hunted before, we have to do registrations, whether it's online, whether it's this. No, you may get a survey in the mail, which I did get a survey to, to fill out. Uh, they emailed me a survey and I filled it out. But I was like blown away. And I'm like, this is this is frustrating. I learned all the Colorado rules cover to cover uh, trying to find out that because I felt stupid asking that question. But again, I didn't want to go there not knowing uh, so I did ask that question. And that's well, another thing. If you have a question like that, call a game warden. We, we'd rather have that question up front, than, it, it, not in the field, than in the field saying, hey, you have too many fish here. Uh, and this is the regulation. This is where you could have found it. You know, so I, I think most guys are like that. But I have seen the other side where, you know, they just write a ticket and, and it's their personality. It's nothing. It's just they, they write tickets and they leave. Yeah. And there's no, hi, how you doing? There's no nothing. Here's your ticket. Have a nice day. So, and some days we have bad days and we're like that too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I mean, on the other hand, you know, you're, you're, especially if you're, if you're dealing with hunters, you're dealing with people that are armed. You're dealing with people that, uh, who knows, you don't know what you're dealing with. And I would imagine that there has to be a, a, a pretty serious amount of caution there, even for accidental uh, discharge mm -hmm. of a, of a, of a firearm. You're standing around talking to people and all of a sudden somebody's gun goes off. Uh, you know, that's not cool. And, and you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, beginning hunters out there that, that, I mean, they may have passed the hunter safety course, but that doesn't mean that they've walked around with a loaded gun very often. And, um, I don't know, I would think that, you know, it's one thing to be cool and nice and everything, but it's another thing mm -hmm. to realize that the person that you're talking to is, is armed. I mean, you know, when a police officer stops somebody on the road, they don't necessarily know they're armed. When you stop somebody, there's 95% chance that they're not only armed, but there's one in the chamber and maybe the safety's off. 
Like, like, I mean, seriously, like that, that's something that you got to be, be aware of all the time. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm not telling you anything like that's, that was your, uh, your business, but. Yeah. I had an officer do a flying tackle on me one time and knock me down and start yelling. And uh, he came around the corner. We were walking. The guy had his gun raised and pointed right at us. What he was doing was glassing the area, looking for moose. Well, when he saw movement, he uh, pointed it our way. Uh, so that's not the, you know, bring your binoculars, use your binoculars. So that doesn't happen. He got reamed. Um, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> that makes you feel very uncomfortable when somebody points your gun, like you said, intentionally he's looking for moose, but he's pointing a firearm and then he sees movement. So he points it at basically the two game wardens coming up to check him. Hmm. So the other officer did a flying tackle, knocked me over just in case, you know, maybe he's going to shoot. Maybe he thinks we're a moose. Yeah. Uh, so yes, the, it's times and times again, I could tell you many stories. Uh, and it, it's an uncomfortable time when you tell people in a group, watch your gun. And I've had to tell them twice. And I've taken guns away from them, unloaded for them, and said, you can load that up when I leave again. Uh, because it, it got become uncomfortable because it's unintentional gun handling. And that's one thing with all the on- online learning right now. As a, as a hunter education instructor, I would throw those guns up there, the bolt action, especially the lever. The lever is probably the most dangerous gun we have out there because it leaves it cocked. And you have to uncock that gun to make it safe. And when you uncock it, sometimes it slips and it goes off. Mm-hmm. I've seen it happen. I've been around it's happening. But if we use that first rule, that first rule, treat every gun as loaded and always point in a safe direction, those mishaps will be safe mishaps. It's when we skip those rules, the beginning rules, always pointed in a safe direction, always pointed. I can't say that enough um, because things happen accidentally, even to officers, to experienced hunters. But if we always have that pointed in a safe direction, those mishaps, we don't have to read about them in the newspaper or deal with a, a death or something like that because of those. So, um, but the gun handling, you're right. It's got to take time and you, and the, people are scared of those guns at hunter safety and I make them, I'm like, go up and grab the lever action. Show me it, you know, okay, go, go grab the bolt, go grab the semi-automatic. And throughout the course, I am constantly making people handle those guns till the end of the course when it was, you know, you know, two or three days, they were pretty comfortable in handing, handling all those actions and that was the most important thing to me is being comfortable with those firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that, that's, that's a huge key, yeah. you know, but there are gnarly times for game wardens and certainly have been shot mistaken as game. Um, you know, we had an Ohio officer shot uh, this last year. Uh, I believe he was mistaken for game. But again, they didn't identify their targets. Uh, there was felons involved, felons that shouldn't have firearms. Um, it, it was, you know, a case that, you know, it was just horrible. And hopefully we'll be talking about that down the road so he can share his experience. But, you know, again, shot and not going to be the re- same for the rest of his life Wow. Uh, from, from a guy that should have never had a firearm to begin with. And again, didn't identify his target or, or beyond his target. So, right. Um, yeah. Well, that's just that's just one of the the kind of stories that you're telling in your podcast, man. I I, I really um, 
I've enjoyed this. It's it's been it's been really cool to to uh, talk to you, get to know you a little bit. But uh, really big big compliments on your podcast. I really like it. And like you say, it's well, probably more you. important or, or more popular than the the Warden's Watch uh, uh, column, the written column. But you do a really nice job on it. And uh, I don't I haven't listened to the other one yet, the Thin Green Line. Tell tell us what that is. Yeah, and um, we're, it's it's for people that support conservation that aren't necessarily game wardens. So we've had like uh, Jack Carr, who's a former Navy SEAL, oh, yeah. novelist now. I just read his book. On our show. Yes, just uh, nice. Great. So Jack Carr has been on our show. And if you read his books, he engages in conservation and he engages with game wardens. If you notice, he writes them in. So very dynamic. And I really enjoyed it uh, because of those reasons. You know, when he goes to Africa in the second book, and I'm not sure if you're there yet. But, no, not yet. Uh, um, <clears throat> but I so figure he had to go somewhere after the first book. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, but he incorporates, you know, thinking when he takes those shots, you know, game wardens, where are they going to be? It's the opening day of elk season. No one's going to bother with that shot. That shot's going to blend in, but where are those game wardens going to be? He doesn't want them in the area that he's operating. Those are kind of neat things because, boy, people go to the woods to hide their crimes, and we experience a lot of. Very strange things. Uh, I've had dealt with murders through my career. You know, three come to mind, high-level murders uh, that were happened in New Hampshire. We just had one that occurred where game wardens were the first ones on scene where they decapitated a victim. Hmm. Um, just, uh, you know, it, we're always engaging. And Jack Carr brings that out. He brings out, hey, there's some law enforcement in the woods. And he writes in the game warden part, which I love. And he has that connection to conservation, which I love. So um, Colonel Oliver North has been on there. Um, just a dynamic conservationist, uh, outdoor guy. Uh, just just great. So um, but we're having just some discussions with the thin green line print, thinking about bringing it into warden's watch too. maybe making an extension, an extra or something, because uh, it, as you know, there's only so much time in the day to brand, to get out, to outreach and, and things like that. So we're having those conversations now. Um, so I don't know what the future is going to bring. It's forever changing and we're in a fast pace, but I do want to say, I've been listening to your podcast too, and oh, yeah? I'm looking forward to reciprocating and getting you on. Um, I started the breathing techniques too, and I'm Did pretty you? fascinated with the few I've done. And I'm like, man, I'm going to keep this up and keep, uh, keep going. So, right on. uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so, uh, uh, that's pretty powerful, man. That 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 breathing technique, and then up your way, you've got plenty of cold water. You can go jump in. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah. In Florida, we have to make an ice bath, uh, but in your your area, I'm sure you can find a lake that that you can go jump in and uh, and experience the cold because that's what that Wim Hof uh, method is all about. It's got three tiers. You know, you got you got meditation, you got cold water, and then you got the breathing. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I don't push it on anybody. I just kind of tell people about it a little bit, let you make your own decision. But like I said, in the podcast, it's one of the few things that I've ever tried once and stuck with, uh, for, for an extended period of time. It's usually, you know, you try something, you're like, I don't know if that really did anything, but the first time I tried the breathing, I was like, Oh yeah, that's pretty sweet. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. And then that, and that's when you said that, that's what caught my attention. Yeah. You know, here's a guy and I love the cover of your podcast too, because it shows your bicep with a tarpon. And I'm like, man, that guy's ripped. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so I'm like, uh, you know, when you said that, I'm like, uh, geez, I, I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to try this out. And when you said it was the only thing that, you know, you really tried and you stuck with that, you know, you kind of think it at first it's a gimmick, but after doing it, I'm like, oh, I've, that made me feel really good. I so, know. Well, I'm glad you like meditation it. at the end is it clears your head. Are, are you putting too much, a lot of oxygen up there? Because I, I don't think so. I've ever had my head that clear at the end. And I'm yeah. like, no, I feel the same way. And and the other thing that you can try as you're doing this is is uh, you know just do do a set of push-ups and get your maximum set of push-ups, not associated with the breathing. Just like after this, just how many push-ups can you do? Maybe you get thirty, fifty. I don't know. Whatever you get, and uh, yeah. and then do the breathing, and then try to do the push-ups on on an empty lung, and you'll do so many. Like if you if your max is thirty, it wouldn't surprise me if you did forty five, and it's oh. just a it's just a really weird kind of thing because you are obviously super oxygenating your blood, and you don't need to breathe for a certain period of time, and you can do physical exercise, and it's just a I don't know it's a weird thing, but Wim Hof it, it is, is a, he's are an you interesting your guy. Lungs at all because I was wondering. I think we, so. We, I think yeah. you are. I mean, I think that that's really good for you, and I think that um you know I've I've been um hesitant to to really say too much about it in the covid era because i don't want anybody to think that i'm giving covid advice but it sure does seem to me that you you can only expand your lungs and you can only you can only use your diaphragm with muscles like you're you're using muscles to lift your diaphragm and expand your lungs you're using muscles to to expand your chest and push it back in you have all these little muscles in your in your chest and everything you're using muscles in your in your throat you're using all these muscles and it seems like if you are just like anything else if you're you're a game warden. You need to walk up hills. If you walk up a hill untrained, you're not very good at it. If you walk up hills every single day, you're going to get really good at it. So I would, I kind of think that it only makes sense that if you are exercising all of these muscles in your chest and your diaphragm and your throat and that you become better at breathing, you become, it becomes easier. It becomes easier to take a, a big breath in, in a rested state or while you're sleeping and uh i don't know if that's if that's what's had the the biggest effect on me but it it certainly makes sense to me that you know you're exercising your lungs and uh not not unlike if you took a you know you go for a run you know that's got to be good for right. your lungs and everything too as opposed to just staying completely sedentary but um yeah i like it a lot i i do it pretty much every morning and uh yeah good glad to hear you like it yeah no i hope to get in a routine just like that every morning do that and, and share it because uh, well the people I, around I, you will I, think that you're super weird and you just have to I, <laughs> you just have to kind of uh my wife is like oh my god not again right <laughs> like now like you're gonna do that now like we have we have company like oh i'll be on i'll be in the driveway you know but uh yeah you just kind of you just kind of have to find your own time to do it to where you yeah. won't bother anyone well, that's for sure. Cause I, I think it is, it's, uh, I'm going to wait till my wife sees me do it. Cause she will be like the same way. She'll be like, oh, that, that's a little weird. Yeah. Super <laughs> weird. Yeah. Just say, I know, I know uh, it's super weird. Uh, I'm with you <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, Wayne, man, we'll do this again. Uh, I really enjoy your, your podcast. I suggest that everybody go check it out. There's some really interesting stories, including some four and five part, um, podcasts where I guess, 
I'm Those gonna save that for a long. I'm gonna save that for a lot a, a longer drive. But uh, yeah, man, I'm uh, gonna keep listening to it, and I'm gonna check out the Thin Green Line. I look forward to coming over there and doing that with you. And uh, man, just thanks for for coming on. It was cool to cool to get to know you a little bit. Same here, Tom. I really appreciate it, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. All right. Uh, so follow follow Warden's Watch. You can subscribe to that. They're on the Waypoint platform like we are and also everywhere that you find podcasts thin green line that's also everywhere you find podcasts um wayne is that right and then yep. do you have social media what what we social? do we have a website we're on instagram we're on facebook we're on tiktok which uh, <laughs> my social media woman uh she's she's young and she's like uh this is for my generation not yours and <laughs> i said that's fine <laughs> whatever <laughs> hook me up <laughs> so all of that is under the warden's watch uh kind of if, if they search warden's watch they're going to find you somewhere exactly all right well follow them check them out it's got some got some cool stuff all right wayne thanks so much man we'll uh we'll talk to you soon you're listening to the waypoint podcast network brought to you in part by hunt stand the number one hunting and land management app don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.